What on earth are story games? And what's this game I keep hearing about? What's Dungeon World? Welcome back, Rescuers. I'm your host, Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Following on from our exploration of Dungeons & Dragons, I wanted to start creating more episodes that explore the ideas around other well-known role-playing game systems. To do this, I decided it'd be a good idea to talk to people who already enjoy those games. Today's episode is the first of these, in which the brief was to create a Dungeon World 101. I hopped online and got into a great chat with another fabulous hobbyist who's part of the Dungeon World scene. This is Season 3, Episode 3. Yochai Gal is uh, an avid fan of the Dungeon World role-playing game and hails from Massachusetts, USA. He maintains the Dungeon World syllabus, a repository of links useful to anyone who wants to get into the game, and he's a highly active person within the Reddit community. Yochai uh, published the beta of his own Dungeon World hack, One-Shot World, via DriveThruRPG in January, and he's here today to talk about the Dungeon World RPG and why we should consider getting into it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. So which do you prefer, being a player or a game master? I mean, I you know, I always want to say, oh, I'm just the game master because no one else will do it, but it's not true. I, I much prefer being a GM. <laughs> okay. Is there any particular reason? I think, I think it depends on the system, honestly. Um, I think as I've grown within my own RPG skill sets. Um, I've learned that as a player, I enjoy different things than I enjoy as a GM. But specifically, the reason I usually enjoy being the GM is because the position of having authority and um, ownership over a largely made-up universe that's shared between multiple players, that, that really makes me feel... A sense of power and not over other players but just over kind of um the world that we're interacting with on the other hand as a player what i really like is the opposite i like discovery and exploration and problem solving yeah. so it just depends so I, what i would really say is that within uh the story game sphere i prefer being a gm but within the osr sphere i i think i much prefer being a player right if that makes sense yeah absolutely so what do you most enjoy about role-playing games um, well, for one, I, I feel like as we've gotten technology more and more enmeshed in our lives, it's become both easier and more difficult to keep um, true human connections. And I, I think I think a good way to do that is to tell stories. I think telling stories is how we make sense of the universe. And um, it's a pretty big part of my life and always has been. So for, for me, role-playing games are just a mechanized way to tell stories, which is something that I've basically done with every game from chess to settlers of Catan. I've always just tried to make stories out of what was happening in those games, just for myself and, and being able to do that as the purpose of the game is, is just a a beautiful thing. So yeah, that's how I describe it. So you say it's the sort of emergence of the tale that comes from the play that you really like. I mean, definitely. Uh, Although I could make the argument that you could take up, random roles and play those out and it would still be interesting you know like if, if you wanted to play silent titans which is a into the odd based uh game slash system by patrick stewart in that system you are basically playing within a pretty um 
fleshed out world with characters that you did not create. You randomly rolled them up. I still would think that that's a, a pretty decent story and you could, you, you get a, a sense of an emergent gameplay out of it. Um, so you're not necessarily tied to a, a, a sort of natural story that comes out of the play. You can play within someone else's world, but yeah. Um, yeah sorry, I didn't mean to misread your question. I just wanted to point out that it, it's not like one size fits all. I think whatever gives you that feeling of living somewhere else or of sharing an imaginary world with other players, that's kind of the thing I'm looking for. Yeah, and it sounds like you you really value the interaction between people. Is that fair? De yeah, definitely, and especially as I've gotten older, is um, making time to have face to face interactions. I'm not trying to, you know, criticize people who play online. I think that's wonderful. If you can find community anywhere, you should totally go for it. But um, yeah. for me, uh, no cell phones, no computers, pencils and papers and dice is the only way to really focus and and create that sort of experience. So on a personal level, I'm very focused on the human interaction that happens on the table in person. Do you have a particular worst moment in your role-playing hobby? Hmm. I've made a lot of mistakes that when I think back on, I think, Oh, what a fool. I did that wrong. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think one time I was the kind of, at one point in my life, I was, a bad GM. I might still be a bad GM, but I was much worse <laughs> uh, like five years ago. And um, I did, I do recall a moment where a character wanted to do something very cool that, you know, there was no rule saying that they couldn't do it, but it just didn't make sense within the logic of the world. And mm. I, it's not that I said no and I had a problem and that that was wrong. You know, sometimes you do have to say no. Um, but I feel like in this specific circumstance, I, I really should just let him go with it. He just wanted his sword to light up like uh, with flames as he ran his hand along it. And we had this whole argument about how that really wouldn't work. And without any oil, how could you do, you know, this stupid stuff. But I do mm. recall a specific incident that I, I kind of feel bad about um, because I think the player after that didn't want to play with me again because uh, I was saying no when I shouldn't have. But that's not really anything too serious. No, I think I've had plenty of those kinds of moments in my time players want to do something and you kind of you don't really feel it or see it but you're right i guess it's a very personal thing isn't it you know yeah and it's also based on the system some systems push you to be a sort of yes and kind mm. of gm and I, I, which i i am but i feel like you do really sometimes have to be the you have to create a sense of adversity for the characters the character um the characters that the players are playing to, mm. to overcome. And, and, and I, and it's hard to know when to do that. Like, when do you say no, you know? And I know some people who would never say no, uh, they'll just go with it and, and maybe find a way to say no through the fiction or whatever. But I don't know. I, I feel like that was a kind of turning point in my development as a, as a GM. So I guess I don't really, I think you didn't say regret, but I, I don't really regret what happened. I just remember feeling pretty bad about it later because he was a good player. So <laughs> And you say it was a turning point. So did you change yeah. how you approach things since then? Um, I think I realized more what my preferences were yeah. and thus tried to find systems that better appealed um, to that part of my skill set. You know, when I started doing role-playing games, or I should say when I restarted doing role-playing games, the um, system I went to was very traditional. You know, it was 5th edition D&D. And, and, mm -hmm. and after running it for a couple of years and, you know, doing two hours of prep before every session, which for me was a necessity, I don't know why, 
um, mm-hmm. I realized that, that really wasn't a system that I could work with. Not not that other people can't, and some of the problems I had were sort of self-made, but I, I realized, oh, you know, maybe this really doesn't work for me. Like I can't handle this cognitive load. And and so recognizing, hey, finding systems that have less cognitive load for the play, for the GM, that's a really good, that will increase my own enjoyment and, and hopefully the players as well. And and that actually caused a schism where I lost half my players. <laughs> but um, that's what happens when you switch systems, you know. So anyways, uh, yeah. So 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 it's, it, it, it's all good. It's all, it's all, it was all helpful towards leading me to where I am now. The learning curve. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, but sometimes it's crazy. You know, how do you run a hundred games and then realize, oh wait, I've been doing this all wrong. It's it's amazing how, in ten years, I'll probably feel like I was, I was a terrible GM now. You know, so I, it's, it's an interesting um, hobby where you really do have to check yourself over long period of time and, and see what you've missed out on or what your um, players are saying. And I, I feel like as uh, as I grow in my uh, GM capabilities. I realize more and more how it's really just personal and specific to the person, you know? Yeah. No, thank you for that. It's a really interesting kind of, um, you know, sort of tale to tell really. <laughs> how do you keep yourself motivated yeah. to play? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it can be difficult because I, I moved to a new area recently and lost mm-hmm. my gaming group. And because I don't want to play online and neither do they, um, I have to kind of start from scratch. So part of what I do is I just consume a lot of RPG content. I'm, there's My wife is always pointing out how there's just something new in the mail every day, um, <laughs> what, whether it's a new story game or uh, indie RPG of some kind or an OSR supplement. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I got Silent Titans just recently. And yeah. before that, I I, <laughs> I got the new Troika book and I'm still super excited about the Ultraviolet Grasslands Kickstarter. There's all these like little supplements that I just keep consuming. And, you know, yeah. for a short while, they seem to, to help. And beyond that is just trying to find players that um, are compatible and available. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so the pursuit of, of finding a, a, a gaming group is what ke- currently keeps me inspired, I guess, plus all the reading and you finding that difficult in the face of fifth edition then because you said like you play fifth, fifth edition a lot but it wasn't for you you're not playing it do you uh, find it now difficult no not at all actually i think if anything you know the rise of fifth edition has has led to um an overall positive uh yeah. role-playing game experience for everybody it, it does set certain expectations and I, i'm sure there's a lot people much smarter than me could pontificate in this regard but um for for me the only downside quote quote unquote, downside is that when i look at the various meetup groups or university groups or you know friendly local game store groups they're all dnd fifth edition or pathfinder lots of pathfinder i don't know how that is but so much pathfinder and um that's disappointing to me because i don't play it but i'm super happy that people are doing that and telling stories and having a good time um I just uh, wish there was more of this sort of what I would argue more uh, um, approachable role-playing game systems that are out there that aren't, that don't require a 236 page manual just to understand as a player. You know, I feel like, yeah. like uh, fifth edition is very, there's, a, it must be doing something right, but at the same time, it's, it's something that um, I found very daunting coming from where I, from my uh, schism in society. So um, I'm sure others feel, the same way you have to really try i think um so yeah what i'm not i'm in no way uh 
disinclined towards fifth fifth edition. I think it's great. People are playing it. Oh, it's fair enough, isn't it? Really. Okay, let's dig into the meat. Um, so tell me, one Earth is Dungeon World. <laughs> uh, that's so that requires a little bit of explanation if people Good. are <laughs> if, people, if people are willing. So it, the short the shortest I can make it is that Dungeon World is a D and D like powered by the apocalypse role playing game. Um, what that means is that it is a system very similar to Dungeons Dragons of any edition in that it's high fantasy with elves and dwarves and bards and clerics and wizards um and that you sit around a table and roll funny dice to uh see what happens but um what makes it a little bit different than many 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 other uh more traditional or old school role-playing games is that it uses a role-playing game framework known as powered by the apocalypse um which means it games that are in some way derived from apocalypse world by um vince and mcgay baker uh which is a a fairly well-known but tiny tiny indie role-playing game that came out um <laughs> actually quite a while ago now it must be 10 or 12 years ago maybe more yeah a long time ago um but um what that is i guess how you define a a uh powered by the apocalypse game is that it uses one or more of these fundamental characteristics. Um, it has uh, a dice mechanic where you roll two six-sided dice and depending on the results of that uh, roll, you either succeed, partially succeed or fail. Um, and right. that sort of three-tiered uh, dice mechanic is, is, it's not unique to uh, the system, but the way in which um the GM response to the dice rolls is pretty unique. Uh, for one thing, in Powered by the Apocalypse games, the GM, almost, well, except for very few exceptions, the GM does not ever go. The GM doesn't do anything unless the players fail. So right. um, in Dungeon World, for example, uh, the GM would never say, oh, the monster attacks you. The GM would say, the goblin wields its bow and arrow and um, points it in your direction and you feel like it's about to fire an arrow straight at your head. What do you do? And then the players respond in any order that they wish or in the most logical order. And depending on the results of their dice roll, um, either they dodge out of the way or they get hit and the GM gets to define how that works out um, or they um, don't get hit, but they are able to sidestep it into some other catastrophe nearby. Like maybe they, they slip off of a hill and roll down the hill or something. Um, oh, and, okay. and, and, and when I used the phrase earlier, get hit, what I mean is that they, they fail and that can be, mm. that, that doesn't have to be just uh, the, the GM rolls or tells them, tells, tells them that the monster does damage. It could also be that the GM um, makes what's called a hard or a soft move, which means that the GM will um, uh, maybe, maybe they'll, avoid getting hit, but they'll fall off a cliff and break an arm. Or maybe they'll um, dodge out of the way and drop something really important. Or maybe they will get hit, and as the arrow is going through them, they also um, lose something valuable. There could be all kinds of things that, that occur as a result. It all depends on what the GM decides and what makes sense in the fiction. But yeah, to kind of pull out of that sort of a <laughs> long tangent there, um, in general, Dungeon World is, is comprised of moves and uh, playbooks. And moves are like little rules that 
are triggered by certain events in the fiction and playbooks are just another word for classes and they're kind of a mm. grouping of all the moves that your your specific class can do so um an example of a move that would be universal to any anyone of any class is the move hack and slash and hack and slash is basically when a um player character tries to engage a monster in or any kind of enemy in uh, melee combat it triggers and it has a very specific uh language around how how it triggers and what it means so that the specific wording around hack and slash um says that if you get a 10 or higher the uh player does damage and they can optionally do a little bit more damage but they put themselves in danger um while the <clears throat> pardon me while the uh seven to nine result like if you roll a seven to nine on on the 2d6 roll uh, means that the monster can do damage to you and you get to do damage back to it. And on a six or lower, it's considered a fail. So that's an example of like a three-tiered result um, yeah. tr triggered by a move. Now, before I got, kind of go like on another tangent here, to be clear, that's just one example of one specific situation. Um, that it's not like there's a move for every single situation out there, it's just for a lot of the common ones. And it, yeah. some some playbooks they get to respond with a special move that gives them some extra added ability. Um, so just to kind of like stop there, that's in general, that's what Power of the Apocalypse means and what it means in the uh, context of a game like Dungeon World. There's a lot more to it I, I could go into, but that's sort of the basics from a player perspective. Yeah, okay. I mean, when I... Because I think I, I first got um, interested in Dungeon World, I think I bought it, according to my um, records, around about 2013. And I think a, a kind of comment I would I had on and the way I felt about it at the time was this whole thing of moves was strange to me. You know? Um, I didn't really grasp it very well, so I think you've just explained it quite well to me, but... Um, but it, I was worried it would be restrictive. What would you say to that reaction? I mean, I think that's a pretty legitimate response. I, I don't think it is restricted, but I think it is mm -hmm. legitimate to feel that way, to feel like it's getting in your way, like the moves get in your way. And I mean, what, one of the things that I think I appreciate about the Powered by the Apocalypse systems is that they are collapsible. Like if you wanted to remove all of the moves, you totally yeah. could, and the game wouldn't change that much. Because the system as a framework starts from um, a few fundamental principles and agendas for the GM. And the GM also has their own moves, of course. But the players, the way that they interact with the world, as long as you keep this fundamental mechanic of um, you roll two six-sided dice and add the relevant modifier. And um, it, it, if it's 10 or higher, you do good. If it's 7 to 9, you do partially good and if you fail yeah. you do bad <laughs> as long as you keep that fundamental mechanic the, the gameplay is still relatively um freeform and works out the same way as if you just had a whole bunch of moves and i think it's a i do think it's a pretty legitimate critique of dungeon world is that there's just um these moves that feel like they get in the way but what what i the way that i see them and I, a lot of people i've spoken to see them is that a move in dungeon world is more just like a useful rule that can be applied to make the fiction more interesting. And if it isn't more interesting, you should just get rid of it. Because again, it's not like, you know, it's not like um, in D&D where you're calculating what fall damage is. It, it's, it's a piece of language that is there to um, make a certain mechanical aspect to the fiction 
more interesting. So um, if you wanted to write your own move, for example, which a lot of people end up doing uh, when they become GMs, um, it's yeah. quite easy to do because you just follow the same thing. You just say a trigger and then what happens on the three different results or the two different results usually. Yeah. And I, I, I can see why people are thinking to themselves like, well, wait, I don't need, I don't need to a special, you know, written move that I have to read every time I hack and slash. That's not really what Dungeon World tells you to do. What, what it tells you to do is to not even look at your character sheet, just to think about what you're doing in the fiction. Don't say I hack and slash. You say I run at the enemy with my sword and I try to cut across his chest, um, you know, uh, disemboweling him on the process. And the GM might say, okay, so that's great. Um, it sounds like you're triggering this move. So why don't you roll 2d6 and add strength? Great. It looks like you did a 10 or higher. Why don't you tell me how you disembowel him um, and roll damage or something? And that's yeah. that's kind of the way that I run it. Um, I will tell you that one of the positive uh, side effects of this set sort of um, rule system is that combat is really, really fast. Um, in, in, in games like 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, what you end up having is a kind of mini game that where each person first they roll to see if they hit, you know, then they do the, they, yeah. they combine three numbers to see if they um, like, see if they hit, then if they did hit, they say, okay, well, let's see how much damage I did. Let's combine these things. And then they go around in a circle. And after everyone's initiative has been counted, they, the, you know, the, the bad guy goes. So it kind of happens out of sync in this weird sort of um, war game style, tactical mini game. Um, which is, mm. if that's what people like, that's great. Um, what I like about Dungeon World is that combat is extremely fast. It's handled by the GM in general. So the GM kind of moves around the table saying, okay, now what do you do? Okay, now what do you do? And instead of having the monsters have turns, the monsters only get to go, quote unquote, go when the players fail. And and what that means is yeah. that if you're looking to create a kind of um, heroic, fantastical adventure where the PCs are these badasses who um, not win every battle, but who get to act like heroes. It's a really great system for that. It's not a system for gritty zero to hero um, tactical oriented uh, funnels. You know, it's, it's, it's made yeah. for people who want a certain experience. And I think it does deliver that experience pretty well. Most of the time um, there are, plenty of examples where it doesn't, but I, I think the biggest selling point for me when I came to it from D&D &D was that uh, you basically can't prep for it. You can prep a little bit. You can right. prep scenes, you can prep um, plots, or you can prep, uh, I should say encounters, not plots. You can, prep, you can prep encounters, you can prep scenes, you can um, have stuff ready in your pocket, but you can't open a module and say, in this room, there are these objects and these this many doors and if you're having a fight, you know, there, this is how many squares there are in the door, in the room. You, you just don't, that doesn't happen. So for me, when I went from doing two hours of prep for D&D &D for Curse of Strahd, let's say, to running, you know, eight month long campaign arcs where the most prep I ever did was a half an hour. And I did it after the session. So I can remember what, it, what, what transpired. And, and to, to be clear, the reason that that happens is because the, the dice mechanics are such that you can't predict a binary outcome. You know, if a thief is trying to pick the lock to a door and um, he rolls a 10 or higher, then great, he picked the lock, he's able to get in and, and he did it silently, no one heard him. On a seven to nine, maybe his 
door, maybe the, the door opened, but the lockpick broke, you know, or on a seven to nine, maybe the door opened, but an alarm got sounded. Uh, or maybe he hears footsteps coming nearby that he has to make a decision. Does he jump into the room or does he, you know, uh, prepare for battle? Like because of that tertiary dice mechanic, it becomes very difficult to keep the fiction consistent with a module, which I think is one strong criticism that a lot of um, people in the old school role-playing community have of it is like, you know, I, I can't keep the world consistent. It's constantly emerging during gameplay in a way that um, is a bit too collaborative or a bit too uh, unpredictable. And, and I think that's a legitimate concern. It doesn't bother me personally, but sorry, I'll give you space to continue asking questions. No, it's fine. It's great. Um, so you talked about the moves and you also mentioned playbooks. So are they effectively like the, the reference sheet for your character class? They, they are. They, so playbooks are basically made up of all the information about your character, but also all of the basic moves that your character uses that everyone else has and a number of moves that are unique to your specific class. So for example, um, the Barbarian. The Barbarian, which is, which is my favorite playbook for... Dungeon, Dungeon World, and by the way, did not come with, it's not part of the original core rules, you have to get it from the website, but the Barbarian is a great example of what makes Dungeon World unique. Um, with the Barbarian, instead of using uh, Hack and Slash to hurt people, or one of the, another move, there's other multiple moves where you can hurt people, but Hack and Slash is the main one. Um, a Barbarian has the ability to, um, instead of rolling 2d6, roll 1d6 and 1d8, and um, what that means is that they get a higher chance of success. But if the D8 is ever lower than the D6, it's, they have, um, it's considered a partial fail, even if they got a 10 or higher. So, um, and they can only enact this when they are pursuing one of their appetites. When a barbarian is created, when you create a barbarian character, you pick two appetites from a list. And um, those things are like, uh, they might be like um, decadence or like... Uh, uh, pursuit of pleasure, like of pleasures of the flesh, or maybe destruction. There's all these kind of appetites that you can choose that you'd expect someone like Conan the Barbarian to, to, um, to, to enjoy. And if you are pursuing those things, then you, as you are the only character that gets to do this, you get to roll a D6 and a D8. So you get this special rule just for you. Um, that's that would only be possible with this kind of move system because it's it's just really easy to make new rules for this type of um, game system. And so when you make playbooks, the yeah. playbooks really do show stark contrast to each other. And there are plenty of other examples. Um, the wizard has a move called Ritual. And although the wizard has Vancian style spellcasting, it's a bit easier than D&D in my opinion, but it is still Vancian style. Uh, which in that in that you have spells called fly and you know you cast them and they last for a duration or whatever. Mm -hmm. What's cool about the the wizard is that he, the wizard character comes with a move from the very beginning called ritual, and what ritual can do is anything. Basically, the wizard says, "I want to take advantage of this place of power," and a place of power is up to the GM to decide what that means. Um, and I want to I want this effect to transpire. You tell me four things from this list. Um, that I need to do in order for this to happen. So in my very first game of Underworld that I ever ran, of course, I had someone pick a wizard. And the um, 
the big bad had created this poisonous well in this forest that was leaching life from the forest and doing a bunch of evil crap. And um, at the very end of the session, the wizard said, I want to enact a ritual that reverses this, um, you know, soul sucking well, the power within this well. And I, and, and, and we're going to call the well a place of power. And I said, okay, um, you need to meditate for a half an hour and you need these uh, resources from within the game fiction and um, you can't be interrupted once. Like I set these requirements. And so what came out of that experience was the other three characters had to defend the wizard while he meditated on doing this ritual. And it made for some really exciting quick combat. And, you know, I didn't time it. It's not like I did six seconds around. I just decided when it had been long enough. Um, but the beauty was at the end of the session, he did reverse it. Um, he did, you know, use magic in a way that wasn't prescribed. He reversed the magic. He solved the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And from his perspective, this guy was a longtime Pathfinder guy. He said he had the same storytelling experience as uh, a traditional role-playing game, but instead of wasting all this time on like looking at whether the spell needs, um, uh, you know, a somatic or a um, verbal component and a, uh, a number of different um, other requirements that, in my opinion, put a, too much cognitive load on the, the player. He just did it within the fiction and it was still the same experience. They still had an exciting kind of end of session experience that um, I think was really special. And, and, and it really shows what makes the game unique in that there is this sort of abstraction concept to it. Like you don't focus so much on um, like, like another example of, of this exact thing is you don't, you don't focus so much on how many arrows you have, you know, when, a, when a, mm. when a person fires a bow, the volley move, which is what you use when you shoot things, the volley move gives you the option to to lose one ammo if you roll a seven to nine. So if, if you say to me, I'm going to um, shoot that goblin in the head over there, and I say, okay, um, terrific, let's do that, and you roll 2d6 and you get a nine, you get to pick from a list. Either you have to move into a position that um, is less than uh, perfect and thus um, uh, put yourself in danger, or you have to take multiple shots and you lose quote unquote one ammo, or you do less damage because um, you had to take an, an imperfect shot. Like you as the, as the ranger, whoever is firing the weapon have to make a decision. It's not me who decides that as the GM, but what's cool is instead of counting how many freaking arrows you have, you just lose an ammo when you roll badly <laughs> and you start with three, you start with three ammo. Right. So instead of having, you know, and three ammo can be 30 arrows, it can be 20 arrows, it doesn't matter. You don't really worry so much about the small stuff. And the same goes for adventuring gear. Instead of writing down that you have a box of um, like a, a lantern fuel and a rope and um, some pythons and a, a stake and uh, a bunch of other, a tent, instead of all that crap, you just have adventuring gear and you get to use it five times. And if you buy adventuring gear um, at any point during the game, if you need to pull something out that you prepared ahead of time, of course, you didn't really prepare it. You're just assuming that you did. You just mark off of a use. So you could be, you know, in the on the edge of a cliff looking over at some massive abyss and you as a player did not expect to have encountered this situation you can say, well, I have adventuring gear, so I'm going to mark off one use and give myself climbing gear or pythons. And there you go. Now you have that. Um, so that's another kind of abstraction that I think makes um, gameplay more fun and have less cognitive load. 
I um, so I'm hearing that basically Dungeon World has these three elements. It's the two d six roll. Uh, we have the moves and we have the playbooks. Is that sounding right? What makes it really different? That's that's very true in terms of the player side of the equation. Mm-hmm. I think what where it really shines, at least for me, is the the GM side of the equation. Right. Because for the GM, um, you start out with all these principles that a lot of long time game masters already follow, but. Um, if you were like me and you're just kind of doing this on your own, you, you probably don't. And a, an example of that is, is um, a GM list of um, rules contains an agenda, principles, and moves. So here, I'm just going to actually read it to you because I think it, uh, it makes a difference. So the, the GM's agenda is to portray a fantastic world, fill the characters' lives with adventures, and play to find out what happens. And the, the first one is pretty obvious. You, you know, your, your goal is to make the world fantastic, make flying cities and giant turtles and, <laughs> uh, you know, demons running from the earth, like do that. The second one, fill the characters lives of adventure just means put the characters in, in peril, but make sure to be a fan at the same time and give them something to fight for. Um, and then finally play to find out what happens is I think the most cardinal role. And that's give the players um, the opportunity to create the story as you are playing. So don't plan something ahead of time and um, try to shove it down their throats. Don't railroad. Just play and see where the dice leads you. And you, it, it does take time to learn how to do that. But once you do, it's quite liberating. And, and and of course, you're not just alone in this. Like There's a bunch of principles that help reinforce. And just a couple of those principles, I think, help this. Um, one of those is draw maps, leave blanks. There's, there's a number of principles, and that's the first one. Yeah. Um, what that means is that you you don't use maps. You you draw a big outline of the region. You maybe write some city names down, but you don't want people to um, run into a forest that you've written down that doesn't really help the plot. You want to maybe have the opportunity not to put that forest there. Maybe it should be somewhere to the east because earlier you mentioned something that made that more appealing. Like You, you, you don't want to... Um, prep to the point where characters are running into sharp edges. You, you want to just give a loose skeleton of a world and have the characters fill it out as they sort of play. And, and you do that in a number of other ways too. Um, <clears throat> one, one way you can really help facilitate that is ask questions and use the answers, which is another of the principles that I really love. Mm. Um, what that means is that if you don't know something and one of their characters would, you should ask them. So for example, if you have a cleric, a cleric, a cleric would probably know a little bit about whatever religion dominated the territory that the players are, are engaged in currently. Yeah. You know, a cleric would probably know a little bit about his religion or her religion or some enemy religion. He, they would know. So instead of saying, um, well, let me look in this book and what the major religions are. Let me make it up what you can do. And this is totally up to the GM. It's not like a requirement, but it is one of the principles is you can look at the cleric's character and say, Hey, you, you've been here before, right? What is the most popular church in the area and why? And that's not something that you have to do, but it's something that you can do and helps, um, for me at least, generate a world that I never could have anticipated, which is much more exciting. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I do at the start of every game is I go around the table and I ask each player one truth about the world. You know, I'll say like, um, uh, you know, Paladin Guy what's the dominant religion on this planet or on this, in this, in this, in this kingdom, what's the dominant religion. Hmm. Um, and then I'll follow that up by going to the ranger and saying, you've traveled these lands a lot. 
Um, what news have you picked up recently that makes you worried? Or I'll go to the wizard and say, how does magic work? When you cast a spell, can people see you casting a spell or does it just happen? Stuff like that. So you start to fill out the world and make it totally unique by collaborating with the players. Now, this doesn't mean that the players get to design their own adversity. Quite the contrary. What, what the players do is get asked questions by the GM and the GM decides how to incorporate their answers into the gameplay. And it's, it's not, it's not just a suggestion. It's, it's one of the principles, but it doesn't, they don't tell you how or when or why you should do it. They just, or they tell you why, but they don't tell you in what way you have to do this. But as a GM, it really does serve to ask the player characters specifically what they know about an area. Um, A lot of people get confused by this and think it means that the players just get to make stuff up. And that's not the case. It's that the, the GM gets to ask and the players get to answer. There's almost no situation in which the G- the player character gets to just say a fact on their own. Right. That's not a thing that really happens. Um, so that's just uh, another one of the principles I really like. And there's a bunch of other ones. You know, one thing I like is that you address the characters by their names, not the player names. Yeah. Um, and you ask everyone else to do that too. You also never say the name of your move. Like the GM has a list of moves, things like um, separate the players or... Um, deal damage you never say okay i sep- i'm separating the players <laughs> you just make it happen in fiction um and there's there's a, i think every like D or old school um, gm already follows some version of these uh principles and agenda but having it codified and supported by the mechanics really teaches you how to be um a a, 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 a gm that is a fan of the characters you know that wants the characters to do well and not everyone wants that but it, for me it I like my my the characters in in the campaign I'm running to want to win. I like them to to have um di- you know problems to solve and I like them to lose and I'm fine with them dying too. But I think in general um if you if you care about uh the player characters being the stars of the story, Dungeon World really supports that that play. I I think I'm getting inklings of an answer to this question. But I've heard Dungeon World described as a story game, and you've used the term story game, you know, earlier. Um, but what do you mean? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a that's a difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first off, I think labels are in general not very helpful, but sure. they are necessary when you are just kind of trying to save time. Um, like, for instance, I I think all role playing games are fundamentally story games, just as all role playing games are fundamentally adventure games. Um, if they have characters who are in peril, right? That's kind of like that's. I, I think I think it's you can apply these labels in some ways um, for uh, basically to anything. Yeah. yeah. However, what wh- why people call it a story game? I think is because in Dungeon World, it is it really is true that the story comes first, the fiction comes first. You, you know, like, look at the, the way a character dies in Dungeon World. There's a move called uh, Last Breath. It's a very cool move. Uh-huh. But basically, when you die, when you reach zero hit points, unless you have some special reason not to, when you reach, when you reach zero hit points, your character um, dies and sees, their, they stand in front of the Black Gates, which is um, a metaphor for, you know, Hades or something, yeah. and uh, they meet death. <laughs> And they roll 2d6 and they don't add anything because death doesn't care how cool you are. And <laughs> if they get a 10 or higher, they wake back up. They have one hit point. They're, they're, they're really messed up, and, um, but they're not dead. If they uh, roll a 7 to 9, they have escaped death this time, but death is coming for them 
um, or maybe death makes it made a deal with them. Um, and then if they roll a six or lower, um, they've lost. They're going to pass on to the other side. It might not happen now. It might happen later, but it'll happen soon. Mm-hmm. And I think just in and of itself, that move sort of ex- expresses a, a story game, I guess, perspective where you don't really want the, cl- the characters to die. Like you want them to have difficulty to be beaten. You want them to um, rise up again. Yeah. It, it, it makes it very hard to kill characters. I've I've killed a lot of characters when I when I was a D and D DM, and also <laughs> uh, in other games I've played. I killed I've TPK'd and killed lots of of characters. Um, I have only killed maybe two characters in four years of. Um, GMing Dungeon World on a consistent basis, wow. and even then, when they when they when they have died, there's been some pretty cool agreements with death where they've come back as a different, like they've like I had one ranger who came back as a paladin, but his deity was death, and that was his agreement. Like there's like stuff like that yeah. has happened, but in general, it's really hard to kill your characters. <laughs> and now there are arguments people will make, like, well, you could just do more hard moves. You could just make it easier. And it's true. As a GM, if I wanted to. I could totally make their lives harder. Um, the game, the game is very much, you know, pro character. The characters have really high hit points, and um, uh, you know, monsters only get to go when players fail, which the percentages favor the players, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But as a GM, I could totally make uh, monsters that just tear your arms off. That's what mm. that's totally supported by the mechanics. So uh, uh, the argument that it's more kind to the players is true, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons. But another reason is that as the story came, um, principle goes, putting the fiction first, making the fiction the most important thing is really a big part of Dungeon World and um, also a big part of the quote unquote story games community. So having mm-hmm. like um, having a character who um, maybe gets into a situation where they don't um, mechanically have a reason to know something or know how to do something, but um, fictionally would know how to do something that that that's a very common occurrence in the underworld where, you know, we, we never discussed whether the elven ranger can speak um, ancient elvish, but over the last six months, we've learned that, you know, her father was a historian within elvish studies, blah, blah, blah. So she probably knows a little bit like yeah. stuff like that. That happens all the time where you kind of, figure out and not always for the positive it can be negative but in general the fiction is always first and that's actually i think one of the most important bits of running the game is is that the 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 fiction should always come first and and they this is represented by one of the gm principles begin and end with the fiction which Mm. you know if something happens in the fiction it triggers a move not vice versa and i think that kind of lends itself to a story game style system um that said dungeon world also has a a a number of um old school sort of principles built baked into it and i think there are some arguments that it is both a story game with osr leanings or an osr game with story game leanings like it's it's somewhere in the middle which is interesting because dungeon world it receives so much hate from the um, indie role-playing game crowd. Like, it really does. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, if you talk to any of the Powered by the Apocalypse purists, like folks who like games like Monster Hearts and Masks and the original Apocalypse World, a lot of those people do hmm. not like Dungeon World because they feel like D&D is 
sort of just like lapped up, latched on top of it and weighs it down and and it doesn't do what PPTA games are made to do, which I mean, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm just saying that it, it, they feel like it, it's a, um, a hybrid of the worst parts of both systems and both mm. types of gameplay. And um, which I find is, is pretty ironic because Dungeon World is by far the most popular PBTA game ever created by far. <laughs> like not, not even, is it, it's yeah, there's not even a comparison. It's by far, it's like D and D versus fighting fantasy. It's like, you can't even compare, but um, uh, at the same time, a lot of traditional role-playing uh, folks don't like Dungeon World because they don't like being asked, you know, who is your deity? Like I had, I had a cleric um, in my in my game once who was a guy I had been running D and D games with for years, and I was trying to get him into, into Dungeon World. And when we started, he picked a cleric, and I said, "So tell me about your deity." And he looked at me and said, "Oh, it's that kind of game." Like he did not like that. He did not. <laughs> like that so you you will have folks who are into the more traditional systems that feel like it gives too much um power to the players Mm. uh, and gives them too much control it doesn't in my opinion it doesn't it doesn't let them create their own diversity it really doesn't like they still have to push up against stuff but um it does abstract a lot of the things that um they're used to and i can go into that more later like some of the things it does that are very different but um in general it gets a lot of hate from the story games community and the traditional uh, gaming yeah. community, but I, I, I actually think it's very popular for a reason. So, what do you think makes Dungeon World a really good game for someone kind of returning to the role playing hobby? I mean, that's primarily what my my audience on on here on Roleplay Rescue is, is you know people coming back. So, what would you say about Dungeon World? Yeah, I mean, and that's actually, in my opinion, probably the first question I'm qualified to answer is because it, that's what it did for me. You know, when I was in when I was in high school, I played Palladium Fantasy, yeah. uh, second, second edition, I think, um, which was probably the worst written core rules I've ever seen in my life. But I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought it was, I loved it. Oh, I thought it was so cool. Um, and then I didn't play for a long time. Um, and then in um, like five or six years ago, um, I decided, or no, whatever, a year or so after fifth edition came out, I I got into it again. And um so that's around about 2014. Uh, yes, yes, out, right. So. Yes. So when it, when it was still called Next, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started like paying attention again. And then my um, brother-in-law, brother-in-law and I played um, quite a bit. And we started to play. Uh, we had a regular group that would meet once or twice a week. It was before I had kids. So it was great. And um, <laughs> um, I felt like I was getting something out of it. I really did. Like I even wrote like a 14 page module set in, set in the forgotten realms. Like I did all this stuff, but I just hated how much prep there was. Mm-hmm. I just don't have time for that. I, I really, I just don't have time for it. Now, of course there are many people who will tell you, well, you don't have to prep that much. Here's what you can do, you know? <laughs> and that's great. But for me, that wasn't really something, that's not the way I work. Like I can't use source material and not use all of it. I just, it's not the way my brain works. I, mm. I, I can't help it. So um, for me, one of the biggest draws to Dungeon World was that you really can't prep that much. You can, you can make like, a, you know, you can make some notes and you can set up um, what, what's called a, a 731, which is a really great mechanic that Jason Cordova came up with. He's a guy from the Gauntlet community where mm-hmm. basically you prepare seven combinations of um, NPCs and scenarios and details, and you sort of um, 
pick them as they come up and apply them to whatever situation the players are in. So instead of prepping an exact plot, you just prep certain situations. And that's, that's really cool. You can do that. But in general, there's no way to prep for a Dungeon World game like you do a D&D game. Like I just, uh, you, just you just can't. It's not part of the mechanics. So um, the reason I think it's really good for people coming back to the, to the system is that in some ways, or cut back to the, the hobby, is that in some ways it's a lot easier to run than D&D. I mean, the, the rules themselves, even the rule book, which contains all the monsters and all the playbooks and all that stuff, even the rules themselves are pretty minimal. And the um, uh, spin-up time is way, way less. Like I used to do D&D sessions with new players. And if we were doing a campaign, it would take, I don't know, three hours to make a player right. character with someone who was brand new. And if you had four of us at once. So if there, was, if there was four players, one GM, it would take us three hours for all the characters to get created. And this is for players that had never played before. Um, with Dungeon World, it takes... If I'm not, if I'm doing no world building, it takes about 10 minutes. If I'm doing, if, if I'm actively doing world building and I did a, I wrote up a document on how I do world building that um, I'd be happy to share that basically goes through my process and it works for any system, but it takes me about 45 minutes to do a session zero. And that involves creating a completely unique world that's um, fleshed out in a way that the players can just jump in and understand where their characters are and what they're doing and and all that, um, and and it involves a lot of collaboration. That was never possible at D&D. It was just not for 5th edition anyways. It was just too much. You know, we had to choose the culture of the human and look at how that applies, and then how much weight does the armor have, and then there's like this pig, like how, what languages do you know? You had to like write all this stuff down, and for new players, that was really a curve. I think for experienced players, it's not as bad. Um, so yeah, for so for me, Dungeon World is a version of D anD D that is about high fantasy and adventure. That kind of gives you an idea of what D anD D. It's kind of like what you thought D anD D was like before you started playing it. And a lot, like for me, anyways, <laughs> like like oh, like I would ima- like you know when I imagined D anD D, I never imagined sitting at a table rolling dice. I imagined what what the characters were going to be doing. And I think Dungeon World really helps make that a reality. Um, I also think other systems do. I don't think it's the only one, but um, for me, a it's a um, exciting, no prep, um, easy to learn D and D style game that um, involves player collaboration and involvement in a way that you wouldn't really see from um, more traditional systems. But as a GM, it also happens to come with a lot of really great advice just baked right in. You know, like. Yeah. Like it, it, when you're in a dungeon, it tells you, here are the moves you use in a dungeon. You change the environment. You point to a looming threat. You in- introduce a new faction. You make the characters backtrack. You present the challenge to just one character. You know, you show a weakness in their character. There's all these things that it tells you to do that are great advice that you would have learned on your own, but it just codifies it, you know? So it feels like, it sounds like, you know, there's a, I don't know, a, a conscious decision on behalf of the designers of the game to kind of try and impart how to be a good dungeon master. Is that fair? I, I, I mean, I would say it was, it is probably the biggest takeaway most GMs will get from the game is that this was clearly made to um, be a really, to like teach you how to be a really good GM. And, and mm. I, I think, I think for the most part, it, it's hard to argue with. It has a, a lot of really good advice. Um, not, you know, it's not things that everyone will do, but 
you know, things like name every person, make sure to give every single NPC a name. Don't just, you know, be hand wavy about it. Um, but also, you know, uh, think off screen, like maybe stuff happens in the background. Maybe, um, that smoke you saw in the distance earlier, what turned out to be a village, you know, it's like stuff can happen while the players aren't directly interacting with the, or while they're, the PCs aren't interacting with the world, which makes the world feel alive. Like there's just so much in it that is just codified. Good, good, good advice. Um, and I, I do think that the system itself, because the GM can only quote unquote, make a move when the players fail. I think that really teaches you how to be a, a good kind of GM in, in a, of a certain style, you know, of a certain improvisational um, pro player, uh, emergent narrative kind of style. I think it really teaches that specific style in a way that um, other games don't. Thank you. That's amazing. So, if someone wants to get into it. What what advice do you, do you have for them? Where should they start? Um, probably the easiest thing to do would be to go to the um, Reddit community, the R slash Dungeon World subreddit. Um, only because on the right hand side there are links, and one of those links, which I am going to uh, just point out is is my own is the, the dungeon world syllabus um which is basically a google doc that has uh, hundreds of links that um can help you kind of grok the game um you don't need to read all of them it's just in case a question comes up later you can probably find it there pretty easily um uh, i set it so that the top three uh categories have three articles on the top of each that are must reads. So like basically I always just tell people read the top three articles of the top three categories and you'll kind of get everything. Um, there's a, a link specifically on there. I'd like to point out called the, the dungeon world guide, which is kind of yeah. old, but I think does a much better job of explaining what's, what makes dungeon world different than the book itself does. Um, a lot of people have pushed for a second edition, but it's likely never to happen. Um, and that's one of the things that a lot of people would like to see explained better is is um, some of the what makes this game different on a fundamental level from other role playing games because there's a lot of things it kind of throws out the window that you might be used to. Um, but what is nice is that Dungeon World is a Creative Commons licensed system, so not only can you just steal the mechanics, the actual language itself can be cloned. Like you could completely clone it and make your own hack of it without really having to do anything other than just paying attribution to the like basically saying who you who you took the clone from, which is what I did when I created One Shot World, which is just Dungeon World made for a one-shot session. So that's also another good way people can um, learn the game uh, without buying the book, <laughs> is you can <laughs> you can uh, get gun, done One Shot World for free from DriveThruRPG um, and just kind of print it out and play it yourself and see if it makes sense to you. Um, I do recommend getting the original book because there's a lot of great stuff in there, including monsters and stuff like that. Um, and you can get it from Burning Wheel, I think sells the print books now. Um, but yeah, uh, so check out the syllabus. But really, if you do get into it, um, the Dungeon World Discord server, which is linked in the syllabus, is phenomenal. It's extremely, extremely active. And um, you can go on there and get questions any time of the day and people will be very nice and happy to help. So yeah, those three things, the syllabus, the printed book, and um, the Discord server are the kind of best ways to start, I think. Cool. I better make sure I put links to those in the, the show cool. notes, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so you've spoken a lot about you know the game and how it works and, and given us a lot of clues on what it is you like, but what makes it the game that you kind of prefer to play? 
Um, that's a question I've been asking myself, honestly. Um, it's, I, I myself really like problem solving and creative thinking and, um, mm. I enjoy players pushing up against things like traps and, um, you know, logic puzzles, um, and Dungeon World actually doesn't do that that well. Um, a lot of that is sort of abstracted and I, there are plenty of Dungeon World GMs who will argue with me about this, but in my opinion, <laughs> Dungeon World doesn't do, um, tense situations that well because it, um, isn't highly lethal. I think lethality really leads to um, creative problem solving. I think if you're not afraid to get yeah. hurt, you're not thinking out of the box enough. So that's one thing that I really struggle with with Dungeon World. On the other hand, the reason that I always come back to it, outside of the fact that I just know it really well, is that um, it requires no preparation. And so there's no cognitive load. I, I don't have to, in general, I don't have to write down the initiative of a monster. I make up the monster on the spot. I don't even give it a name. I just describe it. So if later I want to change what it can do, I can do that. And I hmm. uh, I don't have to worry about how much hit points it has because I have a general idea and um, uh, of what size it is and what that kind of means. And and even if I did memorize it, it's uh, the stat block for a monster is like two lines long. It's nothing. It just says, you know, uh, they do this much damage and they, here are their moves and their moves only come in play when the players make a mistake. So it's, it's very little to remember. Um, and that's a really big part of it for me is that the cognitive load is super low. It doesn't require prep and it gives a really fun player focused story focused experience to the players. Um, whether or not that's something that I always want to do is a different question. But um, if I'm looking for a game that emulates D and D doesn't require cognitive load and also has a um, broad appeal because it's well-known character classes and um, has the word dungeon in it. <laughs> um, it's kind of a good example of that. I mean, it really, it really is a system that um, almost, almost always guarantees a good session. I've had some bad sessions, but it almost always guarantees a good session because so many of the mm. agendas, mechanics, and principles just really enforce a certain experience. And um, I play a lot these days with people who are new to the hobby or returning to the hobby because, I, as I said earlier, I, I, I moved and I'm not um, in a place with a lot of um, consistent players. And it's a really great introductory system um, uh, to try to kind of feel out what people like, what they don't like. And um, yeah, so I think if you're looking for that sort of experience, if you're looking for the what D&D was before you found out what it really was kind of experience, I think it really it really <laughs> does do that well. Um, and there are bits you can tweak. And as I said, it's totally collapsible. If you don't like certain things, you can just rip them out. And the game collapses very gracefully into its core self. So it's very hackable. And if that's something that you're into, um, you know, that's, oh yeah. And I guess I would point out that's the other part of it is that I really like hacking games. So um, Dungeon World makes that so easy that um, it's a great starting point. Thank you. Look, we've been talking for an hour. It's amazing, really. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Um, have you got any kind of last words of advice for people coming um, either the Dungeon World or back to the hobby? Not for Dungeon World. I think I've said enough. Um, for back to the hobby as someone who myself made that transition um, I would say, um, you know, be, be forceful, like 
if you really want to find players, do it. Uh, you know, just the other day, I, I thought, you know, maybe someone else just moved to this area and is looking for the same thing. And I went on Reddit and I went on the looking for a group uh, subreddit and I searched for my city. And lo and behold, someone three months ago moved here and put out a post saying, hey, I'm looking for these kinds of games. Um, I'd love to come in and play with someone who's in a similar situation. I messaged him and within a week we met up uh, with him and a friend of his and ran One Shot World. So it was and, and, right. and that's totally, that was totally me. Like I, I Googled it, you know, I went on Reddit, I searched for the thing, I messaged the guy, I texted back and forth. Like it really make, if you really care about it, make the effort. It, it, it does pay off. And um, I think it's, it's, it's a, such a valuable hobby, you know, that um, it's worth, it's worth spending effort on. So thank you. Yochai, thank you so much for giving us your time and coming and talk to us about Dungeon World, which, you know, for me is a new thing. And I'm sure for many of our listeners as well. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you so much for being honest as well, because I think you've given us sort of lots to think about um, and both sides of, you know, what makes the game good and maybe pointers on some of the limitations. Are. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Thank you so much for even, you know, uh, asking my opinion. So <laughs> No problem. So I've got one thing I want to ask before we go, and that is simply, what's the difference between a goblin and a dragon if you've got a two-line stat block? That's a phenomenal question. And rather than explain it, I will recommend you, there is a, on the syllabus, there is a link called the 16 hit point dragon. And it is a, it, it is a, right. It is a very good explanation as to what makes Dungeon World monsters different um, in that in Dungeon World, the dragon has only 16 hit points and um, essentially fictional positioning. Um, if you have a Dungeon World monster who is immune to edge weapons, then it doesn't really matter if they only have 16 hit points because most of your party have edged weapons. Or if you have a, a Dungeon World monster who on a, on a, who, when they make a move, can rip a limb from uh, a person's body or can um, burn them to a crisp, it doesn't really matter how many hit points they have. Now, of course, they do damage. You know, it'll say, like, best 2d10 plus 4 minus, you know, so ignoring armor, etc. But um, the difference is that this, what's important, which is how much damage they do and how well uh, how well they can react to a player failing that makes the difference. And um, uh, if you rely on fictional positioning, it's no different than smog in Lake Town, where smog was messing everyone up and able to burn the town down, no problem. But when that one uh, arrow was shot in that one spot, it still killed smog. And that's kind of the goal of Dungeon World is don't, don't break it down to the math, break it down to the fictional positioning and tell it in such a way that make the players feel heroic and like they've actually done something really cool um, without any kind of like tactical or strategic or, or war gamey kind of um, uh, strategy. And that's, and I think, I think really if people want to grok what makes dungeon world combat special, read the 16 hit point dragon, which I think is um, highly, highly, highly recommended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, I guess we better call it a night. Um, but again, thank you so, so much for coming on and explaining this stuff to us because, you know, boy, I wouldn't know where to start. Well, I, I very much appreciate you having me on here. And if anyone's interested in learning more, um, I am always on the Discord. So <laughs> you can find me. You can find me on the Dungeon World Discord and ask any questions you like. And I, as you can see, I will, I will pontificate. So <laughs> thank you. Brilliant, dude. All, right. All the best. Thanks a lot.
I'd like to give a big shout out to the patrons who support the show through their generous support via the Roleplay Rescue Patreon. You guys are my encouragement and frankly, without you, I'd not be able to find the courage to keep making episodes. Thanks then are due to those 15 people who are my inspiration. Mark Graham, Tim Shorts, Frank Turfler, Ray Otis, Jeffrey Collier, Spencer Game, Jason Hobbs, Richard Fraser, Matt Jackson, Darren Green, Glenn Robinson, Edwin King, Peter Skeynes, Christian Richards and Vance A. Thank you, all of you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. If you ever want to get in touch, ask questions or share your point of view, you can leave me a voice message. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for Roleplay Rescue and tap on the messages button to leave yours. You can also drop comments onto the Roleplay Rescue pages on MeWe or Facebook. Just search for Roleplay Rescue on those social media platforms and you can follow the pages with an easy click. You can also email me via hello at rpgrescue.com. Finally, don't forget that you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash rpgrescue. I'm Che Webster. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next weekend with another episode of Roleplay Rescue. Game on.